please join me in the reading of God's word. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants to the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem, under the care of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing more than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she had won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, 
wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree, was con Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. This is the word of the Lord. So over the past uh, three weeks now, this is the third week that we've been looking at the book of Esther. And the sermon series that we are, are looking at is, uh, we're calling it, um, For Such a Time as Ours. Uh, this book, uh, written so long ago, um, strikes a chord with us in our culture. And the things that we're dealing with in, in society. And so as we enter into this sermon series and we're discovering anew each and every Sunday how, how God is faithful to his people in Esther as he does deliver them through many great reversals that are a part of this book. And so we see that also in our culture today that God will be faithful with us and is faithful with us just as he was uh, with the people, his people in the book of Esther. And so as we continue in this series, we're looking at one of the more weightier chapters in the book. Uh, if you were with us last week, you may remember how Pastor Chris walked through some of the things that we saw in chapter one about the curse, about how King Xerxes ruled over his people and how his courts were, were ruled over uh, the people with such extravagance, such overindulgence. And this plays itself out in so many ways, but, but one of the ways that it does is when, when Queen Vashti is commanded to enter into the king's presence with all of his nobles, when he's giving a feast, she refuses, and there's a, an edict, a law passed, um, that takes advantage of the curse that we heard about last week that dates back to Genesis, that God Told, laid out for us how human beings should live in relationship to one another and about how we've chosen to do things our own way. And God said that there would be a curse, an injustice in the way that men and women related to each other. Chapter 1 tells us this story through how the king uh, proclaimed a law that men would rule over their households, abusing this curse, taking it and using it for his advantage. But as we read through this, this first chapter in Esther about the curse, you know, maybe some of our response is to, to think of it a little bit like, you know, that's, it's more understandable to see how unbelievers would get caught up in something like this. That th these are people, um, King Xerxes and, and Vashti, these are people who do not fear the Lord. These are people who do not follow his law. So, of course, this type of thing and chaos would happen. But then we turn to chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we find that the effect of the curse 
is not something that is only for unbelievers. We see that Esther and Mordecai were introduced to them in the story, and we see that they are Jews. In fact, the text goes to great detail to, to locate them in the exile, locate them in Jewish family. This is important. Chapter 1, we see the curse, but chapter 2, we see Esther and Mordecai, especially Esther, caught up in the effects of the curse. I remember one time when I was growing up, I uh, went on a trip with my family to Ottawa. And one of the things that we did in Ottawa was go uh, whitewater rafting on the Ottawa River. And when uh, we were given the introduction to how to whitewater raft, uh, our instructor informed us that uh, if we ended up outside of the boat, uh, the idea is to stay in the boat, but if you end up in the water to let the current take you. Try to keep your head up and let the current take you because it's no use fighting against it. And if you do fight against it, chances are that you could end up in a worse spot. You could end up in an undertow. You could end up in a whirlpool. And so fight to keep your head above water, but go with the current and let it carry you downstream. Now this I'd imagine, I've never experienced it, but I imagine this is easier said than done. Because water is powerful, especially a rushing current. And it can end up leading you to places that you don't want to go. I think this is a little bit like where Esther finds herself. Because the story in Esther continues on in chapter, from chapter 1 and tells us about how Xerxes, his fury subsided, and he remembered Vashti. And the command that, that he had, he banished her from his presence, and he needed a new queen. And so the suggestion from his quote-unquote wise men was to search the entire nation and bring all the beautiful women in. And whoever pleased Xerxes would be made queen. This process actually was somewhat unusual for Persian kings. Most of the time, a queen was selected based on the importance of family or how it would benefit the kingdom and, and, and the economy. But in this case, there's no attention to that. The only thing that the king is worried about and the, the wise men who, who advise him are worried about is the king's own personal pleasure. Historically speaking, uh, and Chris mentioned this last week, we find this book is written in the midst, in the midst of Xerxes and his campaigns to, to overtake the Greeks. And, and he was very unsuccessful in this. The battles against the Greeks were not going well, and they were depleting the Persian Empire's resources. And so he comes back to Susa and is, uh, is not doing so well. And, and some historians from the time uh, rec who were recording these events as they were carried out, they, they mentioned the fact that when Xerxes came back from these campaigns, he came back as someone who was obsessed with sexual overindulgence. And we see this picture in chapter 2 of a man who seems to be just unraveling. He has no authority in his palace. At every turn, he's listening to other people. He's no authority on the battlefield. He's losing every battle that he enters into. And it appears that he takes it out by taking advantage of women. 
And it's easy to see this chapter too and see Esther and think this is just, this is, this is sexism. Like Xerxes is taking advantage of, of women, using them. But I did a little digging. That's the, not the only people who he was abusing. Uh, we know from historical records that every year, 500 boys were also taken, castrated, and forced to serve in his courts. And these people, as Pastor Chris mentioned last week, these people were given the authority of caring for the, the, the people, the, his concubines. In Xerxes' court, everyone's sexuality, both male and female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. And so women from every province were taken out of their home and into the harem, which is actually quite ironic given the fact that just a chapter previously there was an edict that was given, sent out for men to, to encouraging them to be in a household. And now they're taking all the young women out of the households and bringing them to the king. And what was he looking for in these women? Well, one commentator I read this week put it like this. Given that a woman pleases the king by spending a night with him after 12 months of beauty treatments, it's pretty safe to conclude that good conversation wasn't on anyone's mind. And after a night with the king, the women would return to the harem. They weren't released back into society. They weren't sent back to their families, into their homes. They were kept until being summoned again by the king. Their freedom was taken away and they were imposed upon to be abused. This is what Esther finds herself caught up in. So no longer are we talking about people who don't fear God. No longer are we, are we talking about people who can appear to be willingly subjecting themselves to this. We're talking about a Jew a member of God's chosen, set-apart, holy people. One of God's people has been taken to spend a night with a pagan Gentile man. She is caught up in it. And we can also think, how can a Jew be okay with this? The text is completely silent about this. You know, it's... it's it's pretty obvious that, that God has given the Jews laws that, that would forbid them from being a part of something like this. And nowhere in the text are we given any indication that Esther is against, against what is happening to her. She actually conceals her, her Jewish identity. We aren't told much about this. We're not told whether she's okay with it. Actually, the text is very silent about anything that Esther thinks. We aren't given any hint that she opposes being taken. We aren't given any hint that she does anything above and beyond to please the king. It seems like she's just going along with the flow of the rapids, trying to keep her head up. One True City pastor that, that Pastor Chris spoke to uh, before we began this series said, said that um, when, when we're looking at this idea of Esther not, not seeming to have a problem with this, we have to remember that, and she said this, if you can't say yes, you don't have an opportunity to say no. Esther is caught up in this. She's taken into the harem. 
she's battling this, this inner, I'd imagine, inner turmoil within herself, trying to wrestle with her two identities. Her name, Hadassah, her Jewish name, is, is given to her in this passage, but her, her Gentile name, Esther, is also mentioned. A lot of commentators say this is because Esther is caught in the middle of crossfire. But to judge Esther for this is actually distracting us from the main point of the story, that God is working through broken people who find themselves caught up in all of this and delivers his people in the midst of it. And we'll get to see that in a moment. But one thing is certain, that Esther's caught up in the effect of the curse. Another woman that I reached out to for insight on the sermon series before we began this series, Pastor Chris and, I, Chris and I were very intentional that two white male pastors need people from, who are from different areas, different genders, different ethnicities to speak into this book and help us to understand how different people see it. And so I reached out to a pastor, a female pastor in Washington, D.C., in a very high-stress environment, and I asked her to share some of her thoughts on this book. And her response to me was an apology. Sorry, Hayden, she said, I can't. But not because she was lazy, not because she didn't want to put in the work or the effort, but because she was too weary, too spiritually and emotionally weary. And her email response to me said something along these lines. I found myself caught up in it too. I'm struggling to see God in the midst of the hearings between Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford. I'm caught up in it by trying to pastor people and hearing their stories of her church members and her friends and their own experiences. I'm caught up in it with my own experiences of feeling scared and vulnerable, commuting, minding my own business, or, or going for a run. I'm emotionally and spiritually weary. Last week, Pastor Chris mentioned one in four women are abused. That's two in every pew. One in six men are abused. We find ourselves crying out. You know, this is not how God intended relationships to be. A king who picks a queen by diminishing hundreds of women to what they offer visually and sexually, simply for his own pleasure, it makes us sick. Many of us here can identify with Esther the abused, Esther the one who walks with scars. See, on the one side of this passage, we see Esther. We see her caught up in the effects of this curse, and we see how terrible and sickening this is for us. But on the other side, we have to see, too, that if we cry out for God to deliver us from this curse, we have to see that God would have to deliver us from ourselves. The late R.C. Sproul is often quoted famously quoted uh, when he was talking to a, a room full of business executives and he was talking about our sinful human condition and he said this, if you think about it on our best days, we're actually more like Adolf Hitler than like Jesus Christ. Sproul says this as a, 
as a humbling, honest look at ourselves. As Pastor Chris led us through a confession earlier on in the service and challenged us to look in the mirror and see our own sinfulness, where we need to come to God humbly and confess to him our own sinfulness, our own sins. And for our purpose in this passage, we we could change that quote a little bit and tweak it and say, you know, on our best days, we're actually more like King Xerxes than like Jesus Christ. Because when we strip down what Xerxes and the Persian court are doing, what they're, they're using a person for their own pleasure. This is exactly what he was doing to men and women in his court. He used the power that God had given to him as king. Yeah, he might not have known that it was from God, but it was from God. The power that he was given as ruler was from God, and he used it to minimize people and manipulate them for his own pleasure. When we really look at ourselves honestly, how many of us have used power that God has given us, power to think, power to act, and used it to minimize people, use them to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And Jesus actually spends a lot of time talking about these things in his ministry. He was speaking to a group of people in the Sermon on the Mount, people who thought that they were good people, people who thought that they could earn their way into the kingdom of God. And he challenges them by upping the ante, saying things like, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who's angry at a brother or sister is liable to judgment. Why is he upping the ante? Well, because he's getting at the root. The root that when, when, you, when you really start to look at the core of murder and anger, it's all the same. Because when we get angry at a person, we use, we use a person's actions as permission to verbally or thoughtfully abuse them. Jesus says, you want to talk about murder? Let's talk about anger. Do you want to talk about adultery? Let's talk about lust. Do you want to talk about generosity? Let's talk about the limits that you put on generosity. See, we are a people who can't help but use and abuse the power God's given us to take advantage of other people, to make ourselves feel better. On our best days, we're all really more like King Xerxes than like Jesus. But why am I talking like this? Why am I... This makes us feel so uncomfortable. Why, why do we have to be confronted with a, our sin, our brokenness, Because what we see in this passage, this provides us two different people. We see Esther, the abused. And we see Xerxes, the abuser. Both people are caught up in it. Both people need and cry out for somebody to deliver them. The pressure we feel is building up in this pa- passage. And when pressure, pressure begins to build, we need a release valve. We need something that's going to take this pressure away from us. How is this pressure going to be released? Well, in this passage, we see it through another great reversal. 
The story tells us that Esther pleased the king more than any other woman, and she was made queen. In fact, the text goes into detail that Esther didn't just please the king, that the king was actually attracted to her. And Esther won the favor of almost everyone that she saw. And not because, it, the text doesn't say that she did it for any, she earned the favor by doing anything special. It came to her. So Esther was, was made queen. Why is this important? Because later on in the passage in chapter 9 that we read, Esther is able to appeal to the king and intercede on behalf of her people. When Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had issued a decree for all the Jews to be killed, Esther, the queen, is able to plead with the king for their deliverance. And she sends out a decree for Purim, the festival celebrating the deliverance of the Jews from the hands of their enemies as a way to remember God's faithfulness to them. You may remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, I shared a story about how a messy roommate brought Tracy and I together. That God's providence is alive and active in this book, and we see it again. That God uses Esther, someone who is caught up in a terrible situation, and uses her for the deliverance of his people. What this reversal shows us is that God, our God, our faithful and loving Father, is at work in the darkest places, the most horrific experiences, including the cross. Because when Jesus Christ, God's only Son, came down to earth, he went to the darkest place, the worst thing possible, he was caught up in. The gospel tells us that, that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he let himself be caught up in our sin and brokenness, the sin and brokenness of the entire world. So much so that when he was hanging there on the cross, bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders, the entire world became dark. And we cried out to God to save him. He wasn't. God let himself be caught up in our brokenness, so much so that it literally killed him. Why did he do this? Why did God let himself be caught up in our sin, in our brokenness? Because of his love for us. So Jesus is the release valve that we all need. The cross shows us that Jesus Christ has paid the price, defeated sin, and delivered us from ourselves. And we know this not just because he died, but because he rose again. He's victorious over the darkness. The table in front of me tells us this story. This is not a table for those who are perfect. This is a table for those who know that they're broken. Who know they need to be healed by Jesus. This is a table for those like Esther the abused, the marginalized, those of us who are walking with scars. At this table, Jesus invites us and says to us, I'm with you. 
and I'll never leave your side. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to walk around with scars. Don't you see my hands? Don't you see my feet? I know it hurts. I know it hurts bad. So I'll never stop hugging you. I'll never stop crying with you, and I'll never stop loving you from now to eternity. So take and eat. Take and drink. My body and my blood is for you. He also says to the Xerxes in our midst, the abusers, the ones who've diminished people, acted selfishly, abused power, minimized people for our own pleasure. Jesus says to us, take heart. Take heart. I'm the prodigal God. I run to you. And I won't stop running to you. Even if it costs me my life. My arms are always open for you. My grace is always enough for you. So take and eat. Take and drink. My body and blood is for you. But the best part of this feast is that it's also a promise. In a moment, we'll hear the words, do this in remembrance of me. For when we eat this, blood, this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus is coming again. And he's going to make all things new. All things new. He's making the Esters, those walking with scars, new. The Xerxes, the abusers, walking with shame, new. And so we come. We come. To be healed, to be renewed, and to be sent out as people of God to live and serve others. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray.